Good morning, everyone. Denise, I missed you last Sunday. We were at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. That's where Brian Boardman labors, along with his fellow elders. And that's also where Tim and Kathy LaFromboise attend. Um, so we uh, rejoiced in their fellowship, and they pray for us. They send their greetings. And uh, I had an opportunity to watch um, the message here from last Sunday when Pastor Ismail Miranda preached, and that was quite a message, and I uh, texted him my thanks and appreciation. Um, in God's providence, one, I preached three times there in Nevada, and one of the messages um, was on one of the passages that uh, Pastor Miranda referred to quite a bit, and that was Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, enters the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So we didn't coordinate that ahead of time. It was the providence of God, and it was um, kind of the similar uh, vein of thought that you guys heard here and that the saints in Minden, Nevada heard as well. Well, here we are back in the book of Romans. We're in chapter 2. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 17 through 29. And I'll read that passage and then go back and do a little bit of a review. And before we do that, let's join our hearts together once again in prayer. Lord, we rejoice that we can be together in the house of God. We thank you, Lord, that we can um, read the word together and hear the word together and worship the God of the word. Um, before we, we uh, study your word this morning, Lord, we do want to um, thank you and uh, pray for Michelle Dunn and the child that is in her womb. We also want to pray for Lydia Keller and thank you for answering their prayers and thank you for that baby. We pray for both children, Lord, that you will continue to um, knit them together in their mother's wombs and bring them into this world in a safe and healthy manner, safe for them and for their mothers as well. And we also want to pause, Lord, and just pray for our brother and sister, Mike and Marilyn Neal, and uh, just draw near to them as they mourn the loss of their son, Jeremy. Please draw near to Mike and Marilyn and their their other uh, children, Micah and Melody and Jordan and Jariah, and also uh, Jeremy's wife and uh, also his two children. Lord, would you please minister grace and mercy and comfort and hope to the family circle. And we pray, Lord, that uh, um, out of this time of darkness and sadness and mourning, that you would bring light and joy and salvation. And uh, Lord, we pray that you will help us as Mike and Marilyn's brothers and sisters who love them to uh, rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. So please be with them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, Romans chapter... 
Um, remember a couple of weeks ago when we went through verses 1 through 16, um, I pointed out that the overall theme of chapter 2 is the righteous and impartial judgment of God. And we see that in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. And basically, in chapter 2, Paul is trying to show that people from every conceivable background, they're, they're all in sin, they're all liable to the judgment of God, and therefore, uh, we all need the gospel. The message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus dying on the cross and rising again for sinners like us, that's not just for some people, but it's for all people everywhere. It's a universal message to address a universal need. So uh, as we began looking through chapter 2, we looked through verses 1 through 16, and in verse 1 through 11, Paul addressed the case of the moral person. And by the way, when we say a moral person, we're, we're supposed to be moral. We trust that Christians are moral people. The, the idea is uh, these are people without Christ. And so the case of the moral person means a uh, person who trusts in their morality uh, that all things will be well with their souls. And the same thing with the case of the pagan person in verses 12 through 16. Now we come to verses 17 through 29 where Paul deals with uh, the case of the religious person. And as you're going to see, um, Paul zeroes in on Jews specifically, but uh, what Paul talks about with respect to Jews, much of it can be applied to all kinds of religious people, and hopefully that will become more clear as we go through it. So let's read the passage in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. But, Paul writes... If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, Dishonor God by breaking the law. For, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? 
then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. The word of the Lord. So, the case of the religious person. First thing that we'll notice here in this uh, passage and Paul's argument is the religious person's boast. The religious person's boast, and that's in verses 17 through 20. And uh, as Paul opens up verse 17, he uh, addresses Jewish people specifically. But if you call yourself a Jew, and just to be clear, so we're all uh, talking the same language here with the same understanding, uh, a Jew here is simply the common designation for anyone who belonged to the people of Israel. And we know that in our day and age, uh, the word Jew can be used in a derogatory manner, and that's not what Paul means here at all. There's not a hint of anti-Semitism in Paul's use of the word Jew. Paul himself was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. All of the original apostles, all of the original disciples were Jews. Paul here is simply referring to Israelites, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Paul goes on to mention three privileges of the Jews in verse 17 and 18, uh, belonging to the chosen people, reliance on the law, and a special relationship with God. But here's the thing with the Jews in Paul's day and age. The, Paul, the Jews to whom he wrote in Rome. They thought that because of their privileges, and they were real privileges, they were more righteous than other people. They were on a different plane than other people. Other people were, were Gentiles, they were dogs, they were unrighteous, but they were God's chosen people, the Jews. And so no matter how they lived, no matter what state of heart they were in, they thought that they were righteous. And so that's what Paul's addressing here. So notice what he goes on to say in verses 18 through 20. So you call yourself a Jew, you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And all of these things in and of themselves are good things. Verse 19, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, 
having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Good things. Legitimate things. Blessings from God. And they should have used the law of God that they had, that they possessed. They should have used it in this way to indeed be a guide to the blind, a light to those who were in darkness, a, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. They should have lived in a way that would have shown that they uh, had in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So these things that Paul writes are absolutely true. But the Jews simply possessed them. They didn't do them. They had these great privileges, but they didn't live in a way that was consistent with the privileges that they had. That's Paul's basic critique of the Jews in his day. And of course, he was one of them. So he's not just pointing the, the finger at them. And um, the privileges that the Jews enjoyed did not make them automatically righteous. And also, this was not a new thing. This is what the Jews had been guilty of for some time. God had complained about this, uh, I mean, hypocrisy, let's just call it what it is, back in Micah chapter 3 and verse 11. This presumption that because they were God's chosen people, because they possessed the law, that somehow they were exempt from the judgment of God and they were, they were a cut above the rest of mankind. Micah chapter 3 and verse 11. God says to the prophet Micah, its heads give judgment for a bribe. So the, the, the heads of the tribes give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. So there was corruption. There was pollution. There was sin within Israel, within their, the heads of their clans, within the priests. The, the prophets weren't speaking the word of God. They were um, saying what people paid them to say. They were saying what people wanted them to say. And yet, Micah goes on to write, they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. They were presumptuous because they possessed the law, they possessed the covenants of promise, but they were living as if those things were false, as if they had absolutely no meaning in their lives whatsoever. That's what Paul is writing uh, against. And it's easy to see that in the Jews in the first century as well as in Micah's day, but I believe that many Americans are in this category, especially nominal Christians. 
in God we trust, we say, as a country. And I'm glad that we do. One nation under God, we say, in our Pledge of Allegiance. And I'm glad that we do. There's a lot of Americans who believe that America is an, an exceptional nation. And, and I believe that to a point. I believe we have been exceptionally blessed. But a lot of people assume that because America is an exceptional nation, then we basically deserve the blessings from God. And nothing could ever go absolutely wrong in America. America is here for good. But all of these blessings from God, these sayings that mention God and God we trust, one nation under God, it's all worthless when it comes to our standing before God. What matters is <clears throat> what's in our hearts and how that comes out in our lives. Otherwise, we all know it's common sense. Words are just words. Words many times are empty and meaningless unless they go along with um, how we actually live. And that's another whole subject that we won't get into now. But in contrast to this empty boasting, remember Paul wrote about them in verse 17, that their boast is in God. In, in contrast to how um, the, the Jews in Paul's days were leaning in, trusting on all these outward trappings of the religion of the Old Testament, we should have the spirit of the Apostle Paul who wrote in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's it. No room for boasting in anything else. Who cares if you're an American when it comes to your standing before God? Who cares if you were raised in the Christian home when it comes to your standing before God? Who cares about your, reli your re religiosity when it comes to your, sta your standing before God. Are you boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ or not? If your boast, if your trust, if your confidence is in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ and him crucified, then it's worthless. And Paul is writing to you. So, the religious person's boast, verses 17 through 20. Then we move on, in the second place, to notice what Paul has to say about the religious person's hypocrisy, verses 21 through 24. The religious person's hypocrisy. And in this passage, we're just reminded that it is a whole lot easier to point out other people's sins than it is to obey God's law ourselves. So in verse 21, you then who teach others, 
do you not teach yourselves? While you preach against stealing, Paul writes, do you steal? And it's just a good reminder for us. Um, it's, it's easy to look at what's going on in big cities across America and uh, notice people walking into targets during riots and walking out with big screen TVs because they're protesting. It's easy for us to notice stuff like that, but you know there's a lot of other forms of stealing that the Bible talks about. Not paying the amount of taxes that we legitimately owe. Knowing that you weren't charged for an item in the checkout counter, but you don't say anything. Or stealing time from your employer. And on and on. There are plenty of ways in which all of us can fall short in terms of the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. And then Paul goes on in verse 22. You who say that one must not commit adultery, the Seventh Commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? And here, I would just remind you of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's physical adultery. There's lust. There's pornography. Emotional adultery and other ways in which the holiness, the sanctity of the, um, God's provision of marriage, God's institution of marriage is violated by sinful people. And apparently that's what was going on um, among the Jews that Paul was aware of. Notice verse 22, the second half. You who abhor idols. And the Jews were known for their abhorrence of idols. And in particular, um, physical idols. Statues, graven images. They, they had a well-earned reputation among the Roman world some 2,000 years ago. Uh, as abhorring idols. But then Paul says, do you rob temples? Do you rob temples? And uh, probably, th this by the way is a uh, phrase that's uh, hard to interpret. There's disagreement among commentators. And without boring you with all of the different options, um, I agree with those commentators who interpret this um, literally. In other words, um, some of the Jews in Rome and in the Roman Empire had a reputation of being temple robbers. We, we saw a glimpse of that, a hint of that, in Acts chapter 19, when Paul was in Ephesus, 
And in Acts chapter 19 and verse uh, 37, the town clerk gets involved and quiets this crowd that was rioting. And in verse 37, he says, For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious, and that word sacrilegious, that the ESV takes some liberty in translating it, literally it means temple robbers. And so this town clerk says that uh, these men, including Paul, they were not guilty of being temple robbers. They were not guilty of robbing temples. Craig Keener, in his commentary called um, the IVP New Testament Background Commentary, uh, he wrote that this term meant disturbing pagan temples, and he adds that pagans sometimes thought that Jews were inclined toward such crimes. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse uh, 26, God warned the Jews uh, against such things and then bringing those idols into God's tabernacle and later the temple. And then there's one famous historical example in the Old Testament of of someone being guilty of this sin and then bringing on the wrath of God. And uh, that is found in Joshua chapter 7 and verse 1. Joshua chapter 7 and verse 1, and it's the, the sin of Ai. In Joshua chapter 7 and verse 1, we read, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things. And it was was an idol that was uh, part of the worship of the people of Ai. He took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And as Joshua chapter 7 unfolds, uh, we see that Israel, even though their army vastly outnumbered the army of the people of Ai, nevertheless, they they were defeated. And it was because of this. It was because of the sin of Achan. And then finally, in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 21, the Apostle John concludes his epistle by saying, Little children, keep yourself from idols. And so here's my conclusion. Here's my take on this. The, the, um, the idea isn't to put Christians on the alert about being temple robbers. The, the idea is to put this concept into our brains, into our consciences, that just like Achan and the people of Israel in Joshua chapter 7, we have to be very, very careful about any influence of idolatry. 
we shouldn't consider any form of idolatry to be a small thing in terms of its influence in our lives. And then we need to remember what Paul already wrote in Romans chapter 1 about what idolatry is. It's not just bowing down to a physical object, to a statue or an image. It's anything that takes God's place in our hearts. It's when a created thing becomes an ultimate thing. It's anything for which we exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for a lie. That is an idol. And even though it might seem like an insignificant thing, it can crowd out of our hearts the allegiance to God that he deserves. So we have to be careful. And here's the bottom line in verses 23 and uh, 24. We're still talking about the religious person's hypocrisy. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's what was taking place in the Old Testament. The Gentile nations around uh, Judah and Israel were blaspheming the God of Israel because of the hypocrisy of the Jews. That's what was happening apparently in Paul's day and age. The Gentiles were aware of the hypocrisy of the Jews. Jesus talked about the hypocrisy of the Jews in Matthew chapter 23, and it brought blasphemy. And here's where we have to look in the mirror and not worry so much about the Jews, but about ourselves. And we don't have to convince one another that people in our culture talk a lot about the hypocrisy of Christians. Haven't you ever heard that? That's the first thing often people say. Oh, yeah, Christianity is okay. I like Jesus. But boy, Christians sure are hypocrites. And it's true that sometimes they're not judging righteously. Sometimes people like that really don't know many Christians. All they know are people on uh, Christian television or, or something. Uh, but the reality is, we all know it, that Christians sometimes give Christianity a bad name. People can spot hypocrisy in religious people from a mile away, and they blaspheme God because of it. And brothers and sisters, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. Who cares about us? Who cares about us? But what we profess is the only message that will save sinners from their sins, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that message and that message alone that saves sinners and redounds to the grace of God, to the glory of God's grace. And when we live hypocritical lives, then we give ammunition to unbelievers to, to blaspheme that glorious gospel and the God who gave that good news to begin with. So 
the religious person's hypocrisy. Then, in the third place, Paul writes about the religious person's ritualism, verses 25 through 27. The religious person's ritualism. Verse 25. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What's circumcision? Well, it was a, a rite, an R-I-T-E, a rite, a ceremony that uh, God had instituted among the Jews in the Old Testament. Um, it was to be performed on all uh, infant boys in Israel when they, when they turned eight days old. When it was first instituted, it was also supposed to be performed on all men as well as male slaves. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 through 13. It was a visible sign of the covenant between God and the people of Israel. And because of the nature of it, it was a cutting away. It was a bloody thing. And it was a reminder to the Jews that God was going to be faithful to his promises. And if he wasn't, and this is part of the, this is the point of this vision that he had given to uh, Abraham, that if God was unfaithful to his promise, then he was saying, God was saying about himself, let me be cut in half. And of course, that could never happen. And it was also a reminder to the Jews of their moral and spiritual defilement, uh, defilement from the point of their origin. From their conception, like the rest of us. We're conceived in sin, we're born in sin. And so circumcision should have made the Jews humble and thankful for the grace of God, but instead, many Jews thought of their circumcision as a get-out-of-jail-free card. They boasted in it. And so they thought that they could live however they wanted to live because, after all, they were of the circumcised people. They weren't like those uncircumcised Gentiles. And that's what Paul basically says in verse 26. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And remember what Paul wrote in verses 14 and 15, that even Gentiles who do not have the written law like the Jews did, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Verses 14 and 15. So the Jews had the law more clearly for sure. But even Gentiles have the law of God written in their hearts by virtue of the fact that they're image bearers of God. And even they show some semblance of obedience to the law of God. Of course, not perfectly. But all cultures everywhere show this 
interesting pattern that human beings believe that there is a God or gods to be worshipped, that we shouldn't murder, that we should honor our parents, we shouldn't steal, and we shouldn't take our neighbor's wife. It's wrong to lie, etc. And so Paul's point in verse 26 is that who cares about your circumcision? If someone who's uncircumcised is more practically righteous than you are, Mr. Religious Person, he's saying, then your circumcision has become uncircumcision. And his circ the Gentile, the uncircumcised person, his uncircumcision will be regarded as circumcision because circumcision at the end of the, of the day is just a ceremony. It's just a ritual. It doesn't actually give you any value in terms of your standing before God. Obeying God's law, not just presuming in religious rituals, is the key. And so that's what he says in verse 27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. And at the risk of making you judge me because of the movies I watch, the example that comes to my mind immediately when I read stuff like this is The Godfather. So everyone should not watch it. It's not a family film. But the, the original Godfather, 1972, and um, the scene that I think of is that scene when Michael Corleone, remember, he's the good son, and he doesn't want to have anything to do with his father's uh, mafia business, but eventually he gets drawn in. And then there's the, the scene in the Godfather movie of the, the baptism of Michael Corleone's nephew. And Michael Corleone is played by Al Pacino. And as they're showing all these uh, steps of this uh, uh, infant's baptism, they show all these different scenes taking place at the same time where these, these uh, rivals of the Corleone family are being brutally murdered at the order of Al Pacino's character, Michael Corleone. And... Uh, the, the idea is that th there he is uh, standing in as the godfather of this baby. He's the godfather to this nephew at the altar. But the murders that he has ordered mark his transition into Don Corleone, the godfather of the mafia. But to him, people like him, doesn't matter. He goes to church. He's standing in to be godfather to his nephew. Probably gives lots of money to the Roman Catholic Church. Anyway, that's just what I thought of. And uh, even though other people aren't as uh, radical and dramatic as that, it's the same idea. People love religious rituals because they're easy to do. It's a lot harder to have a heart for God, a heart for people, and to actually keep God's commandments. Much, much harder. Then, the fourth and last place we see what Paul has to write about 
the, the heart of true spirituality in verses 28 and 29. And these are groundbreaking words. What Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, are absolutely revolutionary, especially coming from a Jew and to Jews. So Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Wow. Did you hear what Paul just said? For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Do you know? Do you know the Jews that really count today? And I'm not discounting the role of the Jewish people in the history of God's redemption. And I'm not even discounting the role of physically Jewish people in the, um, the, the future kingdom in terms of what Paul says in Romans chapter 11. I believe that they're uh, God is preserving the Jews ultimately so that there'll be a mass conversion of Jews towards the end. But still, do you know who the true Jews are today? If you're a believer, you. The Bible calls you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a true Jew. And not just here, but in other places, like in Galatians. Look there. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 through 29. Galatians 3, 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now listen to verse 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. That's who the Jews are. The offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Paul says, if you are Christ's, if you are a believer, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You are a true Jew. Romans chapter 2 and verse 29. And then skipping over to chapter 6 of Galatians and verse 16. Verse 15, excuse me. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The Jews uh, boasted in their circumcision. And Paul says, it doesn't even matter. God doesn't notice your physical, outward circumcision. It counts for nothing. But what matters is, do you have a circumcised heart? Are you a new creature in Jesus Christ? And then finally, along these lines, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. 
Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. Paul writes, For we are the circumcision. And I'll just say again, the circumcision is a title for the Jews, the Israelites. It's another way to refer to them. We are the circumcision, not because of our DNA, not because of our physical lineage to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not because of our physical circumcision. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. And it's the Holy Spirit who circumcises our hearts. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Those are strong words. A lot of people put confidence in the flesh. We've been talking a lot about the Jews because Paul has been. I've already mentioned Americans. But I think it's natural to us in terms of our fallenness to put confidence in our flesh. There's something inherent in me that makes me good, makes me better at least than somebody else. I'm an American. I'm a conservative, maybe. Or I'm a liberal. I was born and raised in a Christian home. On and on and on and on. I was baptized. I was confirmed. I partake of the Lord's Supper, just like Mar Michael Corleone. But there's confidence in the flesh. And Paul says... For believers who are the true circumcision, who are the true Jews, we put no confidence in the flesh. Our acceptance with God is based on pure grace, based on God's mercy alone, and it is because of what Jesus Christ has died for our sins and he was raised for our justification that's it. Nothing that we bring to the table. Nothing that we will ever do. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So, some quick takeaways. For believers, based on what Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, we have to be careful to practice what we preach. Let me read to you what R.C. Sproul wrote. Can we not extrapolate the critique that Paul gives to his kinsmen, Israel, and apply it to today's church. We rely on the word of God and on our doctrine. We are confident in our calling as guides to the blind, as lights to those who are perishing in darkness. We instruct the foolish. We are the teachers of infants. We have the form of knowledge and truth. The outward form is there, sadly, R.C. Sproul writes, but that form is an empty shell, and once God bores through that shell and examines the heart beneath the external form, there is no internal reality. That is the judgment that Paul is giving to Israel, but it also has application to us. 
And then to unbelievers, the unmistakable message from the Bible to you is that all of your religious observances cannot make you right before God. Nothing. There's absolutely nothing that you can do to make yourself right before God. We've already mentioned the biggies. Communion, the Lord's Supper, baptism, confirmation, giving money, doing good deeds. Nothing can make you right in the sight of God. There's only one thing that can. You need more than merely human righteousness, which is really like filthy rags, the Bible says. Dirty, disgusting things. You need the very righteousness of God himself that God graciously gives as a gift to everyone who receives Jesus Christ. And at the same time, in a mysterious way, he also renews your heart. He circumcises your heart so that then you'll begin to live a consistent life with what you say that you believe. That is what you need. That's what we call you to. And that is what we offer to you. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ today. Be saved. Be cleansed. Be renewed. Be freed.